evening, my lovely freaks. I'm Stacy. I'm Coulter. And this is, of course... Any crime at all. It sure fucking is. Uh, so, what's new and exciting, Colt? Wednesday, Adams died. From the original Adams Family show. So did Shirley of Laverne and Shirley. Shirley and, of Laverne and Shirley, yeah. Schlemiesel. Schlemazel. Huffs and Pfeffer Incorporated. No? I, I know that. Okay. I, I... <laughs> you're looking at me like, uh, what are you doing, you retard? <laughs> it's, I, I, no, it's because when you do that, I picture Wayne and Garth doing it. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, yeah. You're of that generation. Um, all right, so we're going to get right into it here today. Um, Coulter, have you heard of Alan Legere? Yes, I have. Legere, by the way, is light in French. The, mo the monster of Miramichi. Yes, and he was anything but light. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, so let's get started, shall we? Go right ahead. Oh, Canada. We are known for being friendly and overly polite. Sorry about that, by the way. And if you see us on the street, we'll give you a smile. Uh, hey, how's it going? Or at least a very hearty nod of the head. However, Canada is not really known for its serial killers. I mean, we got them, don't get me wrong. Clifford Olson... Bernardo and Homolka, Robert Picton, anybody else you want to chuck in there while I'm... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Legere. <laughs> and a few others of their ilk. But we are still far behind the USA and Britain. So I wonder if people outside of our beautiful country have ever heard of Alan Legere. I'm sure my generation and older are familiar with him and my kid because of who his mother is. Yes. <laughs> He was doing his grisly deeds in the late 1980s in New Brunswick. In fact, he became known as the Monster of Miramichi because he is responsible for five horrible murders in that province. So let's learn a little bit about the early life of this would-be monster. On February 13th, that's my friend Hannah's birthday, 1948, Alan Joseph Legere was born in Chatham, New Brunswick. Chatham is a civil parish or urban neighborhood within the city of Miramichi. So I didn't know this about Miramichi. Miramichi is the greater... Uh, it's like a county. Yeah, it's like a county, sort of, with cities or whatever inside of it. Yeah. Which I didn't... I thought there was Miramichi, I, then I thought there was Chatham. I didn't know Chatham was inside Miramichi. Oh, you didn't? No, I did not oh. know that. Uh, so from a very young age, Legere's father wasn't around very much, and he ended up leaving the family when Alan and his younger brother were still pretty young. So, essentially, the two boys were raised solely by their single mom. This was fodder for the other children to make fun of the boys in school, so neither brother really had many friends. This happened to um, Fritzel, too, remember? Yeah. Because she was a single mom and everything, and he got made fun of. Isn't that what it? A, what a thing, eh? Like it's it's not a big deal nowadays. No, I was just gonna say, isn't it interesting how you get made fun of that for now? Back then, now uh, the minority are kids' parents who are still together. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I don't know if it's the minority, but probably. Yeah. As it turned out, Alan and his little bro became each other's best friends. But they would feel left out at events when other kids had both parents with them, and they only had the mom. Soon, because of the teasing and bullying, 
Legere began to resent the people in his community. Now, he did discuss his rising hate to his mom, and she would try her hardest to try to dissuade his negative thoughts by recounting stories of American heroes or heartwarming stories from her own life. American, Canadian heroes, sorry. Uh, she reiterated time and again that people were basically good and deserved love and respect. However, all of her positive words fell on deaf ears as Alan began to skip school because of his disillusionment with other humans. But his mom found out, and she was made to go to the school every day, and he managed to finish high school by the age of 16. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, obviously, he wasn't a stupid kid, and he listened to his mom. Yeah. It was around this time that Legere would face the first great trauma of his life. Alan was 16, and his little brother was 15, when a big rig hit and killed the little brother. Remember, this was his one and only friend, pretty yeah, much. his best friend. Yeah. Alan was devastated. His mother was also heartbroken, and given the fact that she had already been frustrated by Alan's lack of employment and the perceived laziness she saw in him, uh, she was also angry. Angry at Legere, angry at the loss of her youngest child, and probably angry at herself. She told Legere that the wrong son had been killed. One of those, eh? Yeah. She also told him that it should have been Alan. These words, as one might expect, did not have a great effect on his mental state. So, over the next couple of years, Legere really started to feel alone in the world. His mom now disliked him, his brother and only friend was dead, and he was not close to any other relatives. So, he moved to a town called Winchester, just outside of Ottawa, Ontario, and got a job as a car salesman. A Winchester, Hunnicutt. That's what popped into my head. Fuck yeah, Mash. He, he was not the best... Uh, salesman. Sorry, I really typed this down wrong. He was, he was not the best at this job, and this business can be pretty cutthroat. Like, they would, all the salesmen would try to undermine each other for oh, sales and shit. Of course, yeah. because they get paid based on sales. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, this would be the only legitimate job that Legere would ever have in his life. Interesting. Yet still, all this time, his anger and resentment at society just grew. It wasn't long before Legere began dabbling in crime. Petty theft, to start with, because he liked the extra money, and he felt he was really sticking it to society whenever he stole something, you know. As with most criminals, though, his crimes steadily got worse. While stealing, if anyone tried to resist him, Alan would just beat the shit out of them and take what he wanted anyway. He also started getting more forceful with women, sometimes attempting to rape them. Now, there are no official rape charges against Legere from that time in his life. Nothing. Okay. This is just... I guess in the court it would be hearsay, right? That's what I was going to say, hearsay. Yeah. By the time Legere was in his 30s, he was living in Inkerman, New Brunswick, about 60 kilometers east of Bathurst. He was a mediocre car salesman. He had no family and he was still thieving and he had a record by this time too. He decided to quit working altogether when he was 37 and moved to Black River Bridge, a hamlet in the Miramichi River Valley in New Brunswick. So he's back in Miramichi. Not in Chatham, but... Yeah. Okay, so, 
John, 66, and Mary, 61, Glendening, John and Mary Glendening, were an elderly couple who owned and lived above a shop in Black River Bridge. They were very friendly and always chatted amicably, amicably with their patrons. However, to Alan Legere, they were the perfect mark. Legere stocked out the store, staked, sorry, staked out the store for a few days and noticed that Mr. Glendenning put his money in a safe in a little room just behind their work area. Now, Legere had never committed a crime of this magnitude, and he figured he would need help. So he befriended two teen petty thieves, Todd Matchett, 18, and Scott Curtis, 19. They already had a pretty good record for uh, B&Es and shit like that, right, at the time. So the three made a plan to break into the store at night, cut the power, and steal the safe. Easy pickings, right? Mm Mm-hmm. June 21st, 1986, in the dark of night, Legere, Curtis, and Matchett broke into the Glendenning store, cut the power, and went to retrieve the safe. But it wasn't there. Well, do they move the safe at night? Unbeknownst to the trio, John had moved the safe upstairs to the couple's living quarters. Now, Alan knew the pair lived upstairs and reasoned that the safe must be up there. However, the criminals were not as stealthy as they thought because they had awakened John and Mary. So when the thieves went upstairs, they found the couple awake in their bed. They immediately began to beat Mr. Glendenning. They didn't even ask, like, you know, where's the money? (laughs) At least find out where it is. Yeah. Until he became unresponsive. Then they turned their wrath on Mary Glendenning. The trio also battered her and took turns sexually assaulting her as well. Why? I don't... Yeah. When they finished their grisly deeds, Legere decided that they couldn't steal the safe after all this mayhem, so the trio left empty-handed. Why couldn't they steal the safe? I don't know. They hadn't counted on Mary surviving, and she was able to give amazing descriptions of the men, and it took less than 30 days for the cops to find and arrest them. Unfortunately, John Glendening succumbed to his injuries. Oh, okay. Yeah. In January 1987... Curtis, Matchett, and Legere were tried for their crimes, and due to the overwhelming evidence at the scene and Mary's testimony, all three men were convicted. Alan Legere was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life with no parole for 18 years. Both Matchett and Curtis were convicted of second-degree murder, sentenced to life with no parole for 16 years. Todd Matchett was granted full parole in 2007, and Scott Curtis died in prison in 2019 of natural causes. Legere tried three appeals, and all were immediately declined. But Alan Legere did not want to be in prison, and he would not stop trying to get out somehow. In 1989, Legere devised a plan to escape from prison. Now, we had read that the most common ailment are ear infections, and I've, I've read two different accounts of how he gave himself this ailment. One was that he hid himself behind the ear many, many, many times. Um, then he left it for a few days until it became infected. Uh, there were reports that he actually had like a, a sore behind his ear even from hitting it. Oh, and that okay. got infected. The other way that I read that he did it was that he poured his own urine in his ear for a few days oh, wow. until it became infected. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Whatever way he actually did do this, he accomplished his goal. And on May 3rd, 1989, Legere was taken to Dr. Georges L. Dumont University Hospital for treatment. While waiting to see a doctor, Legere asked to use the bathroom. It was in there that Alan produced a broken antenna from a radio and picked the lock on his cuffs and shackles. Yeah. He's a petty thief. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. He then whipped the guards with the antenna and managed to escape the hospital out into the city of Moncton. Moncton is about 170 kilometers away from Chatham. Yeah. It did not take long for news of this notorious killer's escape to become national news. It was noted that a profile made of Legere while he was incarcerated stated that he was extremely dangerous and a quote-unquote classic psychopath. Furthermore, psychiatrists believed that he enjoyed killing because of the way Mr. Glendening had been murdered. Also, the fact that he blamed the community for all of his woes was, at the very least, alarming and worrisome. He'd been planning his escape for over a year. Fuck. He'd also... Uh, been getting survival and crime tips from other prisoners. The people of Miramichi were, as expected, very worried and anxious that would, that Legere would return to the community. Now, 75-year-old Annie Flam, sorry, went too high on my computer, had lived in Chatham her whole life. She owned her own shop, and she was friendly with every customer that came in. Annie was friends with most of the elderly people in her community, and she enjoyed her peaceful life. Uh, Nina Laflam, 61 years old, Annie's sister-in-law, lived with Annie in the apartment above the shop. Nina, too, was said to be a very nice lady, and she'd help out in the shop as well. So everyone knew her, too. Exactly. The night of May 29th, 1989, was like any other night, with one exception. A killer was in the city. The police were pretty sure Legere had been staking out the shop, but he'd never actually had any contact with either lady. That night, Legere broke into Annie Flam's shop. The piece of human garbage made his way upstairs to Annie's room where he pinned her down on the bed and began to beat her mercilessly with a blunt object. After having broken the poor lady's jaw, Legere sexually assaulted her then proceeded to beat Annie Flam to death. Oh my God, eh? During the horrendous crime, Legere knocked a lamp over, and when it crashed to the floor, Nina Flam woke up. She immediately went to her sister-in-law's room and found an intruder beating Annie. Nina screamed, inadvertently, because, yeah. holy fuck, what a shock, uh, and tried to get away. However, Legere was younger and faster, and he quickly overtook the terrified woman. He proceeded to beat her, and at one point he choked her into unconsciousness. When Nina came to, she knew she'd have to play dead if she were to survive the horror. So that's what she did. She slowed her breathing and remained perfectly still. Legere was fooled, but soon Nina spelled smoke. The asshole had set the building on fire. Oh, fuck. Nina literally crawled down the stairs. She could not use her legs. And he was gone at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. She, li she literally crawled down the stairs and called the police from the telephone in the shop. Then she crawled her way outside to wait for help. Later, Nina... Now, there are... There was one source that I read that she followed him right out of the building and he pushed her back in. 
but that's one thing that I read compared to multiple other things that I read that didn't say that. Okay. Okay. So, so I, 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 I just wanted to point that out in case somebody reads it. And says you're wrong. And says you're wrong, but that was only the one source that I read it in. Later, Nina told the police that she'd seen the intruder's face and that the attacker had worn a chain around his waist. Well, that's mm -hmm. a sign. Yeah. Police surmised that this must have been their escaped convict, Alan Legere. Because, I mean, I don't know if people do it now, but I don't think that was a big fashion statement back in the day for people to wear chains around their waists. No, not then. Definitely not then. Over 70% of Nina Flam's body was covered in second and third degree burns. She had even lost some fingertips and a few toes oh. from the flames. Annie Flam's body was autopsied and it was found that she died from blunt force trauma to the head and 80% of her body had third degree burns. After news of this awful crime became public, the entire province of New Brunswick was in shock and the good people of Miramichi were terrified. Locks and guns were being sold at an alarming rate and some people even bought guard dogs and installed quote-unquote legere lights. I almost did the quote thing. Yeah. Again, did you see that? You guys can't see it, but I do it. I don't know why. So legere lights were floodlights on poles in backyards. They literally called them legere lights. That's crazy. Um, Just in case you spot a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. The police were under an enormous amount of pressure to find this piece of shit of a human, and they really were doing all they could. There were roadblocks, checkpoints, and near constant searches, but Legere was proving to be a hard catch. From May, yep. From May to September, no one had seen hide nor hair of Alan Legere, despite the police searching everywhere. And when I say everywhere, they were searching the woods, they were searching home to home to home, abandoned buildings, everything. Yeah. They were searching everywhere. They would find evidence of someone having been in barns or campsites in the woods, and reports were made of cars and goods being stolen, but still the monster eluded them. Every time they searched a barn where it looked like somebody was, or a campsite, it was like a couple days old. Yeah. So he, was, he always seemed to be one fucking step ahead of the fucking law, man. However, during this time, experts concluded that Legere had specific types of victims, the elderly and women. They surmised that he preferred, the, preferred these groups because he was faster, stronger, and could overpower them much easier. In early October, the Supreme Court of Canada announced publicly that they could not rule on his appeal unless he turned himself in. The authorities figured that if the killer heard this news, it probably would anger him even further. So police instructed the public to take precautions like locking all doors and windows, installing extra security measures, and to travel in groups. Now, I'm not sure if there was, way back then, was there cameras? Like home back security? Then? in 89? Yeah. Was there... <sighs> for Probably for wealthier people who could have things like that installed. Yeah. Because they never didn't had exist. anything like that. People did have cameras at their home in 1989. Yeah. Just not like... You couldn't call and like, like security a regular systems, service. like 
There must know. have been, right? There you must have been think. security systems, yeah. We didn't need one. We had my dad. He was a light sleeper, and he would have fucking butchered anyone who came in. Yeah. So, um... On October 13th, 1989, Linda Donnie, 41, was returning to the home she shared with her sister, Donna Donnie, 45, in an isolated part of town when she was hit in the back of the head in her own driveway. She did manage to make it into the house, but so did Alan Legere. Uh, oh, God. Once inside, this waste of skin stayed true to his pattern of brutally beating the two women and sexually assaulting both of them before setting the house on fire. When authorities were able to enter the home, they found both sisters in one upstairs bedroom. It was clear that there had been one hell of a struggle as the walls were spattered with blood and laden with handprints and shit was broken all over the room. These women really fought for their lives. One source noted that the autopsy showed that Legere had tortured the women physically and mentally. He tied Linda to a chair and made her watch the Blech. watched the brutality he rained down on Donna before doing the same to her. Oh my god, that's fucked up, eh? Yeah. A forensic team took pictures, just like in the other scenes, and they also collected blood, hair, and semen samples. Now, at this point, before this, there was no DNA laboratories in Canada. Yeah, but this, this was the beginning of it, right? Yeah, yeah. this was like the, the birth of DNA. In Canada, anyway. So this is all about his mother, right? A lot of it. Yeah. Saying, and, uh, well, obviously he's crazy, but... And the fact that he was made fun of before <coughs> because he didn't have a father and... Yeah, but I'm like talking that. about the fact that it's always women. I know he can overpower oh, them yeah. easy. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think he was probably up... Because she was the, the sole caregiver for so long, he was probably intimidated by her. Yeah. You know, so he wouldn't do anything to her. And she didn't respect him. <clears throat> right. So She said it should have been him that died instead of his brother. And I could not, for the life of me, find his brother's name. Oh. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. Um, it was also right around this time that a new forensic laboratory opened its doors in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Miramichi authorities sent the samples collected from the crime scenes, a sample of Legere's hair from a previous arrest, and samples of various individuals that lived in the area for comparison. While they waited, authorities continued their searches, and Halloween was cancelled. Yeah. Because Legere was just too big of a threat, and everyone was still terrified. In November, they don't even cancel Halloween in Churchill, Manitoba. No. They just have it during the day. I wonder, did they because end up having bears. it later on? I don't know. I didn't see anything of the sort, but... Yeah. In November 1989, police got the results for the DNA evidence. All samples collected from the crime scenes were a match for Alan Legere. Now, the authorities definitely knew who their suspect was. They just had to catch him. Yeah. And he's proving very that's, hard that's to catch. Not, that's not an easy job. Huh? I put easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> After news of the Donnie sisters' murders, the city really went on high alert. Lee's Black and her husband, newlyweds at the time, had just moved to Miramichi and she said she was petrified every time her husband left the house for work. She said she would lock all the doors and windows and then uh, like recheck them during the day all oh the time. My. Fuck. Yeah. David Morrison, coach of a local hockey team, 
the Phantoms. Yeah. They're just little kids, I guess. Um, said he slept with a baseball bat under his bed. Still more people recalled hiding their guns under their beds or in bedside tables. The search for Alan Legere would soon prove to be the largest manhunt in Canadian history at the time. 69-year-old Father James Smith was the priest at Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church in the community. He was really very much loved and respected. It is said that he was a very gentle man and he counseled and helped people with any problems, spiritually or otherwise, whatever they needed, he would try to help with. On November 16th, 1989, the congregation waited patiently for Father Smith to start the 7 p.m. Mass. Soon, enough time had passed that two people went to the church rectory to see if the priest was okay. When they peeked in the kitchen window, they saw a lot of blood, chairs, a table, and other items knocked over and strewn about, and the battered, lifeless body of Father James Smith. That's wild. The police were immediately called. I know, right? And Alan Legere, being from New Brunswick, you would think that they were Roman Catholic. I'm just guessing, because all the French people down around there are Roman Catholic. There's so many big, beautiful Catholic churches, like in, in Quebec itself. Yeah. Okay, so the poor elderly man had been hideously tortured and mutilated. Not only was he beaten mercilessly, but his eyes had been gouged out and his tongue protruded much too far out of his mouth as if, as if someone had been trying to rip it out. That's fucking nuts. I know. That's so sick. Smith had been dragged from room to room, according to the, the blood drag marks, right? And there were bloody boot prints everywhere. Police surmised that because the father was found near a safe, Legere was probably trying to get the combination. Now, I didn't see any indication in anything I read whether the safe was opened or not. Okay. So, I'm really... I'm... In my mind, Father Smith was like, fuck you, bud. You're not getting the church's money. You yeah. know what I mean? That's just in my mind. Like, I want... I, I, I want I him to come out on top. I don't think he got the safe. There were more bloody boot prints leading to the garage where police discovered Smith's car was missing. Shortly after, the police received a tip that a man matching Legere's description had bought a, a train ticket to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. New Brunswick police informed Quebec police, and the train was stopped and searched. Unfortunately, they did not find the killer. Father Smith's car was found on the same day, abandoned on a highway. Inside, police found boots, that matched the bloody prints from their latest crime scene. So, I mean, they already know it's Legere, but this is yeah. just adding fuel to the fire, right? Um, on November 24th, 1989, Legere got into a taxi, held a rifle to the driver's head, and demanded to be taken to Miramichi City. Uh, they said Miramichi City, but I, I don't know what that means. So Miramichi, due to icy road conditions, though, the taxi slid off the road into a ditch. Legere then took the driver hostage and commandeered another car. Fuck. At some point, they had to stop for gas. Legere took the keys out of the ignition and got out to pump the gas. 
When he went into the building to pay, the vehicle owner produced a spare key and they and the I've heard differing reports that it's a man or a woman, so I'm just going to say they. And they and the cab driver took off to the nearest police station. Cool to have a spare key on hand. Oh, that is awesome. Fuck. Uh, Because they were dead. He was going to kill them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they were done. Authorities now had a good indication of where the bastard was, so they set up roadblocks and began stopping all vehicles. Then police got a report of a big rig that had been carjacked, and they soon tracked it down. Alan Legere the monster of Miramichi, the man that had taken the lives of five innocent people and kept a province in the grip of fear for six months, was finally behind bars. Fuck. Six fucking months. Can you imagine living like that? Yeah. Oh, my. There are stories that after news of the capture spread, people came out of their homes and hugged neighbors. They cried with relief and had celebrations. And some people even began decorating for Christmas. No one had decorated anything yet. Yeah. Because they were, everyone was terrified to leave their fucking homes. Like they probably didn't garden during the summer. Yeah. Oh, just, oh. On August 17th, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry. I'm talking to you with a bubble in my throat. <laughs> On August 17th, 1990, Legere was sentenced to nine years for his escape and common assault on the police officers at the time of the escape. Sorry, you're probably going to hear the dog. Then on November 20th, 1990, Legere was officially charged with four counts of first-degree murder. The trial began on August 28th, 1991 at the Burton Courthouse near the town of Oromocto? Oromocto. How do you spell it? O-R-O-M-O-C-T-O. Oromocto, yeah, that's... I've never heard of that. Neither have I. Uh, Oromocto is about 195 kilometers southwest of Miramichi. See, it's funny when defense lawyers are like, well, we have to change the venue because there's going to be a bias in this community. You don't think everyone in fucking Canada heard about the Alan Legere thing? Yeah, people... people I don't care where you put it in Canada. There's going to be a bias. Yeah, it's not like they're going to go to Alberta and be like, oh, this guy's innocent. (laughs) Who's Alan Legere? (laughs) You know? (laughs) The jury was made up of five women and six men. This trial is very significant because it was the first time that anyone had been convicted almost entirely with DNA evidence in Canada. On November 3rd, 1991, Alan Legere was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Now, this is Canada, so the life sentences run concurrently, and he would be eligible for parole after 25 years. The province of New Brunswick... Now, there's going to be some money conversions here because you know how I love a conversion, Cole. Yep. The province of New Brunswick had spent $1.2 billion, or $2.2 billion today, on security during the Reign of Terror. The hunt for Legere had cost the RCMP, and by the way, the book I was reading, the author called them the Royal Canadian Military Police. <laughs> I know. And this book, I, I won't name the author. I really want to, but this was the hardest research I've ever done because the writing was shit. It was, oh, it was horrible. Ask Holter. 
Every day I was like, oh, I gotta fucking go do research again. Like <laughs> She had a hard fuck. time. It was like reading The Great Gatsby all over again. The hunt for Legere had cost the RCMP 110000 or 203000 today, and a further um, 314000 almost 580000 today, to establish appropriate security measures during the trial. The security measures cost more than the hunt for him. Because they were so worried he'd get out again? Yeah. Yeah. And because they were worried people were going to try to get in and kill him or oh. something, you know? So, um, and, wow, it's not this much anymore. $63,000 or $116,000 today was spent on getting the DNA results. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? $63,000. That's how much it cost in DNA's infancy to get it done. <laughs> now it's so regular. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you, I sent my, my spit into uh, Ancestry. Yeah. It was like, the kit was like 50 bucks. <laughs> Alan Legere was sent to Atlantic Institution Maximum Security Penitentiary in Renew Quarryville, a city in New Brunswick. Again, never heard of it. In January of, uh, in January of 2021, the Parole Board of Canada denied Legere's appeal to be released. Legere then appealed their decision, saying two of the female board members showed bias. Later that same year, after having reviewed all evidence of the parole hearing, the board upheld their initial decision. It was explained as, quote, the board denied parole based on Legere's violent criminal history and risk to reoffend. unquote. Yeah, like, yeah. No, no shit. He killed someone, escaped, then killed four more people. So, yeah, might be a bit of a risk. Terrorized a county. Yeah. Or whatever you want to call it. Region. Yeah. Uh, today, Alan Legere is 74 years old and is now serving his sentence in the Edmonton Institution. Oh, really? Yeah. A maximum security prison. It is interesting to note that after his parole was denied... Legere described himself as a non-violent person. <laughs> oh my god. Are you fucking kidding me, bud? <laughs> oh my god. So now, Colt, we are going to remember the victims. Yeah. Okay? John Glenn Denning, 66. Annie Flam, 75. Linda Donnie, 41. Don Donna Donnie, 45. And Father James Smith, 69. And we also send love and light to the survivors and everyone else that had to endure the horror this piece of shit inflicted on the people of a community, a province, and a country. And that, my son, is the story of Alan Legere. I forgot how crazy he was. Yeah. I watched, like I said I, to you before, I watched a documentary years and years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And I remembered all the facts about the DNA. Yeah. I remembered yeah. all that. But I forgot he was... I forgot him, about him burning the houses now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. He was trying to destroy evidence and shit. But yeah, I completely forgot about that. Didn't really work. I don't think he set the houses on fire well enough. Or the firefighters got there quick enough. Because they found all... All the uh, the blood and everything on the walls and yeah. the 
No, he didn't. He didn't. Set, he didn't set that one on fire. He didn't set set the rectory on fire. No, uh, Father James. No, but the blood on the walls was the one with the two women. That was yeah, the exactly. He set that on fire, and they still found the. And that was supposed to be in an isolated spot in the in the town. Well, who knows? Maybe they did get there quick enough. Maybe they got there quick enough. I did read that somebody saw smoke coming from over there, and they called. Yeah. They called the authorities, but um, I just, I, I don't really think he knew what he was doing when well, he no, started the fires. Cause... I don't think he really knew what he was doing as a criminal. Yeah, he wasn't very, uh, you yeah. know, but why always say about... Uh... Like, he was good at staying at a site. Oh, he was great at that. But... Surviving in the wild and shit like that, but... Yeah, but you could see him really uh, coming apart eh, at the end there carjacking people and yeah and i mean somebody saw him carjack that truck because the truck driver couldn't have called in somebody else called it in yeah so yeah but it's an interesting story it uh it really i'm not a religious person but i mean taking the life of a priest like i'm i'm pretty I I guess you would call me an atheist in that sense. I don't believe in God or the devil or whatever, but still in my mind, that person really, really believes in their God. And taking yeah. the life of a priest? It's it's weird. Yeah. And doing what he did to the priest? Holy. Doing what he did to the priest to anyone. Yeah. Like, that tongue thing really got me. Yeah, the tongue thing. I gotta thing say was the tongue thing was just ooh. That really fucking got me. Anyway, that is the story of one of Canada's sickest individuals. I'm embarrassed to say he's Canadian. And uh, we will be doing Bernardo and Homolka at some point. I don't know if I want to do Robert Picton because it's just too gross. It is some gross shit. There. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll make Coulter research Robert Picton. I doubt it. <laughs> it's so gross. Well, it's not even because of the grossness. I'm just not that interested in them, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, just to be a good sport, and because I love them so much, if you want to hear a fucking amazing rendition of uh, Robert Picton, go to Morbid. It's like four or five episodes, and by Elena, and she is fucking meticulous. I love those ladies so much. I can't stress it enough. Yeah, let's promote another podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. You guys can fucking write to them and tell them that I'm promoting them. So maybe they'll promote yeah. us. That'd be nice. Yeah. yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, so that is it for today, I think, eh, Colt? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so we will see you guys next Tuesday. I don't know what I'm Tuesday. doing yet or what you're doing. We don't even know who's doing the podcast yet. No, we don't. We have no idea what's so, happening. Um, so, yeah, we'll see you soon. And uh, this is Any Crime at All signing out. Goombye.